Good morning, everyone. My name is Nicole, and in a moment we're going to read God's Word together. But first, let's come before him in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are your people, that you have called us to be your children. And even though we are in exile in this world, looking forward to the heavenly kingdom, we know that your kingdom has been made among us, And that wherever we are, we take your kingdom with us. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at your word today, as James opens it up for us, that you would remind us how to be citizens of that heavenly kingdom, but also how we should reflect you in our lives here, to the authorities, to our communities, to those around us, and in our relationships, and in our church. And we pray that we would be true image bearers of our Lord Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. So our passage today is back in 1 Peter, and we're looking at the last part of chapter 2 from verse 11 all the way to chapter 3, verse 7, I believe, or 10 on the screen. I'll go to 7 and see what that means. (laughs) Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people, Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles, the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, It should be that of your inner self, 
the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right, and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives, and treat them with respect as the weaker partner, and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good, good. Uh, my family and I are leaving uh, for some holiday time uh, tomorrow morning. And if you're wondering about the timing of it all, is James preaching on a passage that says, wives submit to husbands and then leaving the country? Yes, yes, I am. Um, so I've got that covered. Uh, no, but in all seriousness, look, there's some stuff in this passage that's hard for us. Uh, it's, it's a big cultural shift for us to move from what this passage was uh, in its original context and think through everything that's happened and where we find ourselves today. So I do want to just sort of say that straight up front because I know there might be some nervousness and some people that are a little bit worried about that. We're going to try and handle this really carefully, ask that we just take our time with it, listen well, think through what's being said, uh, and we'll have plenty of time for uh, talking about this a little bit later on if you'd like to. So looking at this idea of the submission of free People, free people being a really key idea here. Uh, during the week, I was thinking about this book. It's called Why Civil Resistance Works. It's written in 2011, and it basically was this massive study done by some dudes at Harvard where these women looked at all of these examples of nonviolent resistance from like 1990 to 2006. And what they found was, was that nonviolent resistance was far more effective as far as instituting change in a culture or in a region than uh, violent resistance itself, in almost every instance. And that's really important for us to keep in mind, because in this passage, we're going to see examples of Peter instructing different people who are in vulnerable situations to submit themselves to those that have power and authority over them in their cultural context. And yet what we're going to see is is that he is going to actually, while telling them to submit, also give them tools to bring change and transformation to their situation. He's going to address, particularly husbands and wives, and some of the, the moves that they're making in the cultural situation that they find themselves. But in each and every instance, we're going to see how he is giving a completely counterintuitive means of living out the Christian faith in the cultural situation that these guys found themselves in the time. And it's going to give us a chance to think about what it looks like for us now when we find ourselves in similar situations. But like I said, an important part of this is recognizing that we are going from one culture to another. So we're going to take our time this morning to try and do that well. Okay? So let's get into this to remind ourselves about how we are operating in a different world here. We're in the letter of 1 Peter. It's written by the Apostle Peter, one of the followers of Jesus who worked with him and spent time with him in ministry together. And he's writing to this group of Christians in a sort of further region of the Roman Empire. So you've got Rome there in Italy, and then in modern-day Turkey, we've got these areas of Galatia, Asia, Bithynia, Cappadocia. And he's writing to them as exiles and foreigners, as we're going to see. 
And he's got a few things that he wants them to understand. We spent three weeks looking at the identity of God's people that he's been trying to build up. And it's all to serve this next incredibly counterintuitive and pretty radical way of operating that he's about to exhort them to. He's covered all sorts of stuff so far in the letter. Even though it's quite a small letter, we've seen how it's really, really dense. And one of the things we've been trying to put together is that he's been working with this idea that you were once one thing, okay, and there's a whole bunch of words that sort of fit with what you used to be, but now you're something totally different in the mercy of Christ, right? Particularly, he wants them to understand that they have a heavenly home. There's an inheritance waiting for them. There's a fullness of salvation to come. They're not there yet, and so they have to live in this world, putting to death all of these things that belong to their old life. And yet at the same time, they've been given a mission to declare God's praises in the hope that those in the world around them that are still in that old way of living might too come and join them and become part of God's people also. That's what he's done so far in the letter. And now he's going to continue on with that exhortation, but he's going to add and build to it some very specific circumstances and exhortations for how these believers that he's been writing to are meant to live. So he says this, Dear friends, I urge you, it's an exhortation, it's an encouragement, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, we've talked about this idea, there's there's a heavenly home for them, there's a place where they belong, they might have been political exiles from Rome, but there's certainly a spiritual home that they're looking forward to. And as foreigners and exiles, as those who don't really belong in this land in which you find yourselves now, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. He's recapping what he said before. That's why we're not spending a lot of time here. Including this next part where he says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 1 Peter is a very missionary letter. He's writing to people who are foreigners and exiles. They have a heavenly home, But they're living now in this land as aliens and strangers and sojourners. But as they do so, they're to be mindful that how they live reflects on how God is perceived also. And so he's encouraging them, while you live in this home away from home, Be mindful how what you do is going to be perceived by those around you. And the thing is, this was 100% fitting with what was actually happening in the culture at the time. Because the Roman Empire was a little concerned about this religious movement that was growing. We've got a couple of different examples of uh, historians who, who weren't Christian who spoke about the Roman view on the Christian faith as it was growing. They saw it as this new and impious, so unholy kind of idea, superstition. It was a mischievous superstition. And of course, it's all happening in Rome where it says there, all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. All right? There's this concern that this mysterious superstition is beginning to infiltrate Rome and it's beginning to upset the natural order of things. That's the cultural situation that Peter is writing to. And so he's got some specific exhortations to each of these guys that make up part of Roman culture and society. All right, so he's going to talk to everyone broadly, 
But then specifically, he's going to talk to members of a Roman household, slaves, wives, and husbands. This is a very distinct form of writing that was quite prevalent at the time in Greek and Roman writing themselves. They called them household codes. They were instructions on how to live good, orderly, proper, upright, civic, community-responsible lives. And so Peter's taking a form, a structure, that was used by Greek and Roman philosophers and that sort of stuff, but now he's going to give Christian teaching through this form by speaking to each of these different groups of people. That's the context that we're working in here. So first off, what does he say to everyone? He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. That word submit means what you think it means. It means to subject yourself to another, to subordinate yourself, to put yourself under them. This is really important. You can't etymologically play games to, to get your way out of this one. Submit means submit. Okay, that's really important for understanding what he's trying to do here. And he's going to say it, like I said, three times to these different groups of people. But the reason that they're to submit is for the Lord's sake. We're going to see that's a continuous theme that goes through this as well. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Every human authority. He wants them to understand that this is not something where you submit to the human authority above you based on whether they deserve it or not, but rather, if you find yourself in a situation where you're under this human authority, you need to subject yourself to them, whether to the emperor as the supreme political authority, and not even just political authority at the time. That's why this passage is is often such a controversial one. The emperor at this point in time was, was seen to be like a divine figure. Submitting to the emperor was very much a political thing, but it also kind of had these spiritual connotations to it. But that doesn't fear Peter, or that doesn't make him afraid. He's got a theology that's big enough to encompass the fact that God is over all things. He's been very clear about that. And so he says, for the Lord's sake, who's the real supreme authority, submit to every human authority, whether the emperor, ruler of the Roman Empire, and kind of a demigod in their minds, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Okay, so first up, he's very, very clear that when you find yourself in a human context, under human authority, you are to submit, subject yourself to them. How can he make such a claim? It's because he has a theology that says, regardless of the human situation that you find yourself in, there is a deeper reality that's at work here. And so he says, live as free people. Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. But most importantly, he's saying, live as free people. So we've got two different ideas here at work. On the one hand, he's saying, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Put yourself under them. And yet at the same time, he's saying, live as free people. See, because what we have to understand here is that the freedom that he's talking about here, it's not just the freedom to do what you want, which for the record is a myth. None of us have that. It doesn't matter what circumstance we find ourselves in. 
You read the stories of the emperors at the time who were the supreme authority and all that sort of stuff, and you realize that in all sorts of different ways, they also weren't free to do whatever they want, despite the vast power that they had and the horrible things that they did. There were consequences for their actions. They weren't free to do everything. So he's not saying here, live as free people who can do whatever you want. He's saying, as you subject yourselves to these human authorities, live as free people with an inner freedom as free slaves. You are a slave to God, but that means that you have freedom now in this world because you've been set free from sin and death. You've been given a new birth. You're not bound any longer to all those things that belong to that old life. So now in the freedom that you have in Christ, you can submit yourselves to human authority. Because what's been one of the big theological points that he's been trying to make throughout this entire letter Keep your eyes not just on this world now, but on the heavenly inheritance that will never spoil, perish, or fade that Jesus has for you. Can you see what he's been doing here? That's why he spent so much time in the first part of this letter building up Christians' identity so it's really clear who they are. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen people, God's own special possession set free, living stones being built into this house for God. That is who you are. And as people who have freedom in that, subject yourselves to every human authority. With your eyes focused on all that is great in the heavens to come, you can submit and subject yourselves to the human authority that you find yourselves in now. He is giving them a powerful tool for recognizing that the situation that they're in is not everything, that there is a much, much bigger reality that they're a part of in Christ. And so what he's not advocating here for is that you should now rebel against this human authority because they're unjust or anything else like that, but rather live your life now as free people, as God's slaves, even in the situation that you find yourselves in. Exiles and foreigners in this land. That, that's, the, that's the first picture that he's giving here. And so he says, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. In your community, your church, your spiritual setting, political context that you find yourselves in, live as free people, even while being respectful and submitting to the rules that you find yourselves under. Remember, he's writing to people who are citizens and quite possibly, as we're going to see in a second, slaves under Roman authority. The Roman Empire dominated the political and cultural landscape at this point in time. And his call is not to overthrow this political empire, but rather to recognize that whatever this is, you actually can submit to that knowing the deeper reality of the freedom and royalty that we have in Christ. Okay, so that's the first one that he says. Next one he's going to speak to now specifically is slaves. Now, here we start to see how he's using this household code genre, which had this very sort of specific way of speaking to a Roman household and starting to subvert it. Because ordinarily, slaves would not get a mention. The household codes were written to the head of the house, which was typically the paterfamilias, the, the, the man of the family, the father of the family. 
Even just writing to slaves is kind of a subversive, subversive move. He's using an established genre, but he's writing to a different people using that genre. There's a subversive element to this. And he says here, in reverent fear, which is very much like for the Lord's sake. So he's saying, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. It's a specific type of the human authority he's, ever told, he's already told everyone to submit to. Slaves, you too. Everyone's to submit to the emperor or to the governors and that sort of stuff, but slaves, submit yourselves to your masters. Not only those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Now again, this, this is, if you feel like it's heavy now, it was heavy back then. Now one thing that we need to understand, okay, slavery back then does not look like some of the contemporary forms of slavery that we've seen today. Slavery, particularly we're very familiar with often uh, in African-American context, in the United States, in the UK, and all that sort of stuff. It's got a lot of racial undertones that go along with that also. There's all sorts of stuff from our contemporary pictures of slavery that we have to undo a little bit because Roman slavery was about 16 to 20% of the population. It's like a fifth of the people that were living there. And really importantly, it didn't go along racial lines. It didn't even go along like educational or any other sort of demographic lines that you could think of. You could be, uh, sure, a field worker and be a slave, but you could also be a farm owner. You could be a teacher. You could be a doctor. You could be a lawyer. Sometimes slaves even had their own slaves. Okay, so it's a very different situation that he's speaking to, but at the same time, you definitely had many reduced rights compared to a free citizen of Rome. You, you were a second-class citizen. There's no doubt about that. And they could certainly be treated harshly under Roman law with no recompense or way to seek justice or anything else like that. And so he's saying to these people, submit yourselves to them. And he needs to give a reason, right? And so he says, for it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. Remember, he's told them to submit to their earthly masters in reverent fear of God. Why? Because it's commendable to bear up under unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. Well, what does that mean? He's going to unpack that a little bit more. He says, how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and enduring it? That, that's just something everybody does, right? If pagans do the wrong thing and they get beaten up, they, you can't complain. You did the wrong thing. You got a punishment. But he says, but if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. And now he even goes further. He says, to this you were called, which has this idea of being chosen or summoned to something. This is what you were called into. Why? Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Okay, so follow the logic here. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit to your earthly masters. Why? Because it's commendable before God if you submit yourselves to these authorities, whether they do good or bad. In fact, even particularly if they are harsh or do bad things to you, you have been called to this 
because Christ suffered for you. This is actually the example that he set for us. When you suffer for something unjustly, you are simply walking in what you were called to as those who follow Christ who suffered also. And now he's going to build up this picture of what that actually looks like. This is what it looked like for Christ to suffer. He's going to use lots of passages here from Isaiah chapter 53, which we're going to spend a bunch of time looking at uh, in term three as we work through the book of Isaiah. And so he says this. He committed no sin, Jesus, committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him, to God, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So, where we got up to was talking about this idea that for these slaves, Peter is exhorting them that it's better for them to submit themselves to their masters, even to those that are harsh with them, because they've been called to this as followers of Jesus Christ who suffered for them. And then he's painted this picture here about all that Jesus has done. So just looking back at that for a second. So when they, he committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth, they held insults, he did not retaliate, he suffered but made no threats, and trusting himself to God who judges, he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds we've been healed. We were like sheep going astray, but now we've returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. That's the picture that he's giving to them. All right, so you can see here again, he's come back to a theme that he's referred to oftentimes uh, in this letter here, where he'd say, you were once one thing, you were sheep going astray apart from God, but now you're part of God's flock under his shepherding, following Christ's example. So let's just think about this, guys, okay? So far he said... Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. That's an instruction that's given to everyone, whether it's the emperor, one of his governors, whatever the case might be. You do this for the Lord's sake. And then he says specifically to slaves, submit yourselves to your masters in reverent fear of God because this is what you were called to as those who follow Christ's example. So just be clear on the logic here, okay? The reason that he's asking them to suffer through injustice is because they're called to follow the example of Christ. This is the completely counterintuitive move that he is making here. He is not telling them, fight off this oppression as those who are free. He's not telling them, overturn the social order. What he's saying to them is that actually... This unjust suffering that you are now currently experiencing is what you've been called to as those who follow Christ. Now, we're going to come back and think about this a little bit more, but I just want you to get that picture in your head. The reason that he's telling them to do this is because they were called to this as following Christ who suffered for them. That's the reason. 
Now he's going to speak to wives. Again, kind of radical that he would even speak to wives in his culture as part of these household codes. Right? It's subversive right from the start, even speaking to women, because this implies that they are able to be taught and learn, which, to be fair, the Greeks and Romans did think. They thought that women had the ability to think and learn, but they thought that they had no authority or position to do anything with it, so they often didn't bother. But Peter here is saying, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves. And when he says in the same way here, what does he mean by that? Probably in the same way that he's talked about to everybody else, for the Lord's sake and in reverent fear of God. Okay, so wives, for the Lord's sake, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your own husbands, not to every man, but to your own husbands, in the social order that you find yourself in, in this marriage order, which again, in Roman culture, was sort of a fundamental building block of how you had a good community, how you had a good civil structure, started in the household, built its way up from there. Household, again, not our nuclear family, slaves, workers, wives, children, all part of the Roman household. If that was in order, and everyone had that stuff sorted out, all the way up, you'd have order across society. That was the thinking, okay? But notice here why he says that wives should submit to their husbands in reverent fear of God. It's not to build social order, is it? It's so that if any of them do not believe the word, the word of God, the enduring word, the the imperishable seed that's been put into them, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. This is a really careful thing that we have to do here, guys, when we talk about exegesis. Exegesis is where we read the text and understand the meaning that's in it. It's really easy to take similar passages of Scripture and import those meanings into the one that we're reading right now. Ephesians 5 also has language that talks about wives submitting to husbands, but it's using a very different reasoning in that space for why that is to happen. That's a much more general passage. Okay, it's that speaking more broadly. That's not what we're looking at right here. In this one Peter passage, remember, we're talking to exiles and foreigners using a very specific genre of the household code where he's speaking into a situation where he recognizes that the emperor, there's trouble submitting to him because of the spiritual stuff that goes along with it. Slaves, you're under masters who might be treating you harshly. Wives, you might be in a situation where you have an unbelieving husband, but even then, submit to them so that they may be won over. This is not submission for submission's sake. This is not submission in order to keep the Roman order of things going along. This is not submission in order to have a good community building block. This is submission so that you might what? Win them over. This is not simply passive acceptance of a difficult situation where you just have to sit down and take it. This is submission so that you might win over your husbands when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Okay, understand a little bit more of the context here that's happening when he talks to wives, okay? This is what Plutarch, a Roman historian, again, not a Christian, said... Remember, this is, this is not Christian words. This is a Roman historian's words at the time. But it gives you a picture of the context that Peter was speaking into. 
It says, A wife ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are the first and most important friends. Wherefore, it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in and to shunt the front door tight upon all queer rituals and outlandish superstitions. For with no god do stealthy and secret rites performed by a woman find any favor. Okay, so, so, so this is important, okay? In the context, Roman philosophers and historians and that sort of stuff are teaching women, you simply have to follow your husband. Kind of friends of your own, make friends with your husband's friends. And don't follow any other religions. Don't even open the door to these things. Just stick with your husband's stuff. Okay? And then Peter says, submit to your husband so that you might win him over to Christ. What, in the cultural context that they were in, if a woman tried to open the door and blatantly overthrow her husband's authority over her in that cultural context at that moment, it would have been perceived as open rebellion and in all likelihood would have been smacked straight back down, perhaps literally and physically. And Peter is not saying simply go along with that. He is giving wives who are following Jesus a means to resist and win over their husbands to the very thing that the entire Roman culture was concerned that people were starting to follow after. This is not submission to keep somebody in line or keep somebody down. It's submission so that you can't be accused of disorder and chaos in order that you might win them over when they see the reverence and purity of your lives. It's subversive. This is, not a genuine, this is not a general instruction manual on how to do marriage. Like I said, we can look at the Ephesians passage. It's more general. That's a different sort of thing. We have to understand what 1 Peter is saying in its cultural context in this moment first before we try to apply that to ourselves today. And there is no doubt that in this moment, this was a subversive text. He goes on. To speak to these women who, remember, in this cultural context where they lacked lots of power and agency because of the the social order and the way they were doing it. So these women had found other ways to try and empower themselves, to try to have status and standing. And how did they do that? It was through outward adornment. And so he says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold, jewelry, or fine clothes. Okay, it's the classic move where when somebody is disempowered in one sense, they find other ways to try and build themselves up and give themselves status and all that sort of stuff, right? In this cultural context, lots of these women were doing it with these elaborate hairstyles. You can go and Google them and that sort of stuff. They get pretty wild and crazy, all right? Then again, that's exactly what's on YouTube when, you know, I saw a mohawk thing for ladies with a braid thing. This way. It was impressive. Um, anyway, they would try to get their status from this, right? And now Peter says, rather, it should be that of your inner self. Where your beauty comes from is not your outward adornment, but your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And so again, we see this picture. You once were one thing, okay, This is where you got your beauty from, your your sense of value, your status and all that sort of stuff, but you leave that behind because 
in Christ, you have something much, much better that is valuable to God. How valuable to God is this? A gentle and quiet spirit? Do you know there's one time in Scripture where Jesus describes himself? Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Guys, I can't say this clearly enough. A gentle and quiet spirit is a beautiful thing in a man or a woman. If Jesus, the image of Christ, the sinless man, can say, I am gentle, why on earth would we think that when Peter here is talking to women and saying, be gentle and quiet, that what he means to them is, be quiet and sit down and don't talk? A gentle and quiet spirit in Christ is a beautiful thing, whether it's in a man or a woman. This is not prescribing how a woman should be in the context of whether she can talk and be heard or anything else like that. We're in a context here where women in that cultural moment had agency taken away from them. They were encouraged not to have their own friends, to simply follow their husband in all these different things, who had turned to outwardly trying to make themselves pretty and give themselves status in that sense. And that rather, Peter wants them to see that their inner freedom in the royal priesthood that they are a part of, as the chosen ones of God, you can have a gentle and quiet spirit and let that be so beautiful, so pure, so reverent that you win over your husband to Christ. And some people would take this text and they'd make it into something that keeps women down and disempowers them and tells them that they shouldn't speak and it's garbage and it's horrible. This is an empowering text that says in whatever situation you find yourselves, there is a means to not simply endure, but to win over those who oppose you. Remember what he said at the start when he was speaking to everybody? Let your good works be so great that whoever sees them cannot make any accusation against you, but instead they'll give glory to God. Now, he fills this out in a really interesting way. He says, for this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. The fascinating thing about this is that there's one time that we can sort of see a really clear example of Sarah's obedience in Scripture. It's in Genesis chapter... Uh, oh, sorry, yeah, sorry. When she called him Lord is Genesis 18.12. And then one example of her obedience to him is Genesis 12, 12 to 13. Anybody know what this one is? In Egypt, Egypt, when Abraham says, tell Pharaoh you're my sister so he doesn't kill me. She obeyed him in a situation that put her into an incredibly difficult situation and in all likelihood probably had her having to sleep with Pharaoh. This is not a shining example of obeying a good husband. This is a shining example of her obeying him even in a situation that was morally wrong. 
But what happens through that is that Pharaoh comes to discover the truth. Abraham is shamed as Pharaoh says, what is this thing that you have done? And amazingly enough, through this whole crazy story, Abraham and Sarah leave Egypt with more than what they came in with. But this is the important thing, guys. It doesn't mean any of it was right. He's pointing to Sarah as an example of somebody who submitted in a really difficult situation, and God worked through that. And what he's saying is that you are her daughters if you do not, if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Now, I know what the question is next. What about abusive situations, right? Is that what you're saying, that we just simply have to stay in a situation like that? In no way am I trying to say that. There are situations where when a woman's life children's lives are in such danger or where the abuse is so prevalent that the best thing to do is to remove yourself from that situation. Okay, It's not a case here of everyone simply needs to sit down and take it and endure it and all that sort of stuff. His point, okay, remember, Paul is the same guy that at different points when his life was under threat when he was preaching the gospel in other cities, at one point they had to let him out of the city, you know, over the side of a rock wall in a basket just so he could escape. Peter, sorry, I said, I said Paul, talking about Peter. Brain. Uh, but this, this idea here that, that you have to stay in a situation no matter what's going on here, that's, that's not what's on view. The whole point of this that he's saying, though, is that in the, these structures that you find yourself in, okay, there are ways to resist, there are ways to actually subvert without simply overturning social order. And we see the fact that this is not what Peter's aiming at here when he gets here in this last part and he addresses husbands. He says, in the same way, again, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves. Be considerate as you live with your wives. And treat them with respect. So, sorry, when you're talking about the females there, could, it could actually could be other women in his household as well, maybe daughters, that sort of stuff, not sure. But he says, treat them with respect as the weaker partner and heirs with you of the gracious life. Weaker here probably means physically, but also in their social standing and entitlement. We've seen what it looked like to be a woman in Roman days. That you were the weaker partner. You didn't have the same mobility, agency, all that sort of stuff. And they are co-heirs, as it says in Galatians 3, in Christ. All the same blessings are for men and women in Christ. And finally, he says, so that nothing will hinder your prayers, which is a reference probably to uh, the fact that the Romans thought that good order in the house would bring favor from the gods and that sort of stuff, and Peter's probably leaning into that a little bit. But here's the thing. When I, uh, let's, let's try and put a bow on this. I know it's been a big morning without a disruption and everything. So let's uh, focus up on here. The picture that he's been giving to us is this. You've got these human authorities And Peter is saying, submit yourselves to each of these different authorities. But what he's saying to them is that you submit not as people who are in subjugation and who are powerless, but rather as those who are part of a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen people, God's own possession. And there is freedom in this. And you use your freedom in subjection to this. And each of them have a different reason. Okay, it's God's will that by doing good, you should, you should uh, then silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. I lost a letter there. Silence the ignorant uh, talk of foolish people. For slaves, that this is something that you're called to as those who follow Christ. And for wives, it's so that you might win over those who are above you. And all of this is being done in reverent fear of God. It's being done for the Lord's sake. And then we have a picture here about how in 
human terms, this submission relationship can be really, really damaging and difficult in different ways, whether it's the way that the women try to adapt themselves to the situation or whether it's the way that the men treat the women here. And he's saying, no, as free people, you're actually to do this differently. And so I want us to, to get this on a couple of levels. As God's people, the idea of submission should not be something that we are adverse to. Because as we submit, we actually emulate the example that Christ has set for us. Now, I don't want to draw direct parallels straight up between our governments today or our employers today and say that that's a one-for-one parallel between what the Roman government looked like because it had some religious stuff going on at the same time or even an employment situation, which is a different dynamic than the slave relationship they found themselves back in then. Okay, so let's not make that move, because that's not an exact parallel. But let's recognize this. All of us at one point or another are going to find ourselves in a situation where somebody with human authority is going to have power over us. And they might be making decisions which we don't agree with and that we have difficulty with. And in some instances, we actually might be getting treated harshly and unjustly as a result of this. Now, without telling us that this is the law, this is what you have to do, what Peter is advocating here for is to see this not in terms of some Hollywood action film where the hero overthrows the rule of the oppressive villain with like an act of violence or something like that, but rather to reconsider and say, maybe you were called in this moment to suffer and to bear this injustice following the example of Christ in order that you might win these people over. And it's so interesting to me that, like I said, that book there from the start, uh, we're talking about this basic principle. We actually see this work in human society even when it's not a religious idea. That nonviolent resistance can actually be an incredibly powerful force, but for Christians even more so because we're doing it because of the Lord Jesus. And we're following his example in it. It's not just a good strategy for us. It's a deeply spiritual and sacred idea to suffer like Christ. And we should also be aware when we find ourselves in situations where we maybe are the lower person in a submission relationship, that we need to be mindful that in the vulnerability and in the lower place that we find ourselves, that we don't turn to other things they're actually going to be unhelpful in an attempt to empower ourselves. So for the wives in Peter's day, they turn to outward adornment. You know, picking on our um, younger people here for a second, it's really easy as a younger person, for example, to feel like you don't have much power in this world, and so you get your Frank Green water bottle, you get your J. Crew shirt, you know, you get your Dolce & Gabbana's, all right, and you feel good and powerful all of a sudden. I'm just kidding, girls. It's okay. Don't just, just go with me on the example there. I warned them beforehand I was going to do this. But I'm kind of pointing at this sideways to sort of help us to think and see, as you found yourself in a really difficult situation, as you found yourself in a situation where maybe you've been treated unfairly or unjustly, are the responses that you're making good and godly, or are you maybe turning to unhelpful practices to help you manage it and deal with it? And to be honest about that and recognize that, okay, actually, rather than turning to these things, let me find my trust in God. Let me pursue this. You know, in this instance, it was a gentle and quiet spirit, but really, you know, it's, it's Christ-likeness, right? 
Let me find my identity in my being a royal priest, a chosen people, a holy nation. And let me live out this difficult situation that I'm in from that place of godliness. And same thing, if you find yourself in a situation where you happen to have power over another, don't be disrespectful and inconsiderate and use that power in any sort of abusive way. Use that respectfully. And guys, this is the thing. Just because it talks to women about outward adornment and all that sort of stuff, I think it's worth mentioning here that so often guys in positions of power can dress it up so it looks nice. All right, you, you, you can make it look on the outside. Sorry, guys, I know some of you are matching this look exactly. I didn't... <laughs> I warned one, I didn't warn you, Matt. I'm sorry, man, just look. But this, the whole point is that we can dress it up. In the Roman cultural context of the day, nobody would have thought twice about a believing husband being inconsiderate of his wife. It just fit with the cultural norm. But we have to be countercultural in this also when we find ourselves in a position of power. It's been a lot to take in this morning. I really appreciate you guys working through this together. And it's, it's one that needs some meditation because it goes against so many of the cultural icons and role models that are set for us. We need to think deeply about this. So we give it over to growth groups, give it over to you guys to talk about, to discuss, to go further with it, to chat. Uh, like I said, I am leaving the country tomorrow, but I will be back in a couple of weeks. And um, I think it's also good, if you're having a strong reaction, to let this sit with you for a little bit. Talk it through with those that you trust and all that sort of stuff. And if you've still got questions, I'm going to be more than happy to, to sit down and talk it through a little bit more. Okay, but let's, let's pray. Let's get the music team up here and let's praise God together. Father God, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. Thank you so much for the love that he's shown us, for the mercy and grace that's been poured out upon us. And thank you particularly this morning for the example of suffering that he is for us. That though he was sinned against, he did not choose sin in response. That though he committed no wrong and suffered painfully, he put his trust in you, not in violence, not in earthly powers, but you, Lord. We pray, Father, we would have the same grace as the people of God when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, not to turn to violence and retaliation and, and insult and injury, but rather, Lord, that we would follow your example of being willing to submit ourselves to make wise decisions about what situations we need to remove ourselves from, but at the same Lord, time, Lord, recognizing that this is a gift that you've given us, that we can show our reverence and the purity of our lives in the hope that it might win others also, that we might do good with the hope that others would be silenced, that no foolish accusations could be made against us, and that in following your example, we might win over those around us and give glory to your name. So may, may we sing now as a people willing to suffer for you and give you glory in all things. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.